2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis Thank you for listening. Years ago, comedian Julia Scotti lived and performed as Rick Scotty, sharing stages with stars like Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock. Her return to the stage was part of an extraordinary journey, discovering herself as a trans woman, reuniting with her family, and battling a life-threatening illness. Her remarkable life in all of its joy, pain, and humor is featured in a new documentary, Funny That Way, Later this hour, we'll talk with Julia Scotti and director Susan Sandler. First, a lyrical tale of an ex-Civil War soldier in the Wyoming Territory. Indigo Heaven, the new book by Mark Warren, is a literary Western novel. There's a Southern aspect to it as well. Two regions well understood by the author who lives in North Georgia. Mark Warren joins us now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights.
0: Thank you, Lois. It's so nice to be back with you.
2: The protagonist of this story is Clayton Jane, and we meet him as a young boy. What can you tell us
0: about him? Well, he's born into a very isolated world. His father, who is a Scottish immigrant, is his, basically his slave driver. His mother has been lost to um, disease, and Clayton is left with a father who is pretty much uh, in a mission to go to battle against the world. He feels like he's victimized by the world, and he's struggling to bring about a successful farm in the mountains of North Georgia, and he has no one to help him but his very young son, comes of age much too fast.
2: Yeah, in fact, his abusive father is so unbearable, that young Clayton enlists in the army at the base of Lookout Mountain. We should add, this is set during the Civil War. Later, when his friends learn Clayt is an ex-Confederate soldier, he explains he didn't even know anything about a cause in the war, and he was damn sure he wasn't fighting to keep a man a slave. If I'd had a better grip on the whole story, he said, he's not sure he would have enlisted, much less which side he would have fought. Clayton James had no idea what the war was about, but what did this very young boy provide the Confederate Army?
0: I think there were probably a lot of people in his situation who got swept up in it. Some of them out of peer pressure and some out of just lack of knowledge about what the war was about. But for Clayton, it was a exit out of something else. But because of his young age, he was able to infiltrate enemy territory as a very young spy because he would be the last person to be suspected of such a role. So that's how his career in the war began. But because he was put in charge of taking care of the horses, it was soon uh, evident that he had a special knack with horse care. And he was eventually taken in by one of the very famous generals of the war, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who, if listeners don't know, is the man who originated the Ku Klux Klan. Evil man. Later, of course. And... um, Forrest was a a cavalry leader, and Clayton became part of that, where one of those men who was inducted into that terrible, terrible group of people who have violence just completely acceptable in their lives. They just are immersed in it, and taking another person's life, as war will often do, becomes the norm. And that loss of appreciation for another man's life is a terrible loss to incur, which is one of the things that brings veterans back home from any war in such terrible shape in order to try to slip back into society.
2: Yeah. The chaos and madness of battle brings out such brutality in the young Clate that he kills a drummer boy, not even a combat soldier. What is the consequence for Clayt after that gruesome death?
0: Well, it's the eye-opener for him. At that point, he rises up from a terrible incident of killing that young boy to at least a level of being able to recognize what he's done. And he's wounded at that point, seriously wounded. Perhaps in another book, that in itself serve as balancing the scales of justice in what he's done, but he's a sensitive enough person to realize that he has some great debt to pay in the sense of the the universe, uh, that his sins are unredeemable, really. And as so many people did in that time after the war, he sought a whole new venue to hopefully just grasp a new life somehow. He had no idea how he's going to try to redeem himself, but it looked like destiny took a little hand there for him and wasn't going to let someone who was as good a man as Clay spend the rest of his life in the misery of the consequences of what he'd done. Yeah. What did
2: Clay think the West could offer?
0: Uh, I think just distance. (laughs) He didn't know what he would find there, of course. In, In a way, it was... Much like my life, when I was a boy, I I grew up in College Park, just south of Atlanta. And I didn't even know about the mountains being in North Georgia. And when I finally just happened to be taken there as a young boy or through there, that was a life changer for me because I knew that I wanted to come back there and spend the rest of my life there. For Clay, when he went out into the open spaces, for a long time, being in the prairie, was just an aimless journey that seemed to have no end, but he hit mountains himself. And this was the, the main spine that runs down through America, the Rockies, and he really didn't know why, but he just, he turned his course to go north and and to follow these mountains to see what he might find. And there's something about the land there. The land took him in. If you've ever seen the Teton Mountains and, or gone a little farther into what, hap- what exists in Wyoming, It's not hard to see how the visual effect can grab you. And so he ended up there at the Laramie Plain, which is uh, bounded on the west side by the Medicine Bow Mountains. It just spoke to him, just like the mountains spoke to me when I was a boy.
2: Would you read paragraph three,
0: please, on page 21, beginning with the plains? The plains seemed to go on forever. The gently rolling land seemed to mirror the endless sky the vastness of it all gave him his first seed of hope here in this spacious country where a man was constantly dwarfed by the grandeur of his surroundings he might learn to burn up his past and let the sparks scatter to the stars under this broad western sky there seemed to be more directions more possibilities not just about what to do with his life but also what kind of man to be
2: mm. He encounters a trapper who offers him food, and that trapper suggests that Clate consider the Laramie Plain, where he'll get to see the medicine bows and, quote, the prettiest piece of land this side of heaven. The wilderness school of earth lore that you founded is called Medicine Bow. Is that in honor of the Wyoming mountain range?
0: Well, the mountains and my name from my school are both honoring the same thing, which is an actual ceremonial bow that some of the Plains tribes use, never for killing, but only for ceremony. And that idea always appealed to me. There's a Medicine Bow River, Medicine Bow National Forest, and the Medicine Bow Mountains, of course.
2: Early in his travels in Arkansas, Clayt meets a toothless weaver woman who offers him food and shelter for a few days, in return for which he plows her garden bed. What is the significance of her role
0: in this story? It's what she gives him as a parting gift. She's a very strange old woman and not someone that most people could connect to, but Clay must have seen something in her that just opened his heart to her a little bit, and he was always one to be sure to balance the scales of debts, so she had given him something, and so he did some work for her. The reader gets a sense that this old woman has some kind of sense of prophecy, perhaps, and she gives him an old wool blanket that she has dyed in alder. Uh, Alder is a a shrub-like tree that rose here, and it has a most remarkable bright orange inner bark. The first time I ever saw it was a chunk of wood sitting beside a river that I was canoeing, and it was so bright orange, I just was so curious about it. I wanted to know what it was. The beaver had uh, provided me that first view of alder, and then later as I began exploring into colors of the inner barks of trees, I found that alder was indeed the one. But this blanket which at first just seems like a very simple gift. She told him that it would take care of him, and Clayt had no idea what that meant. One of my favorite parts about this story is how that blanket does eventually become his salvation. Yes, it
2: is a talisman. Eventually, Clayt wanders onto the Afton Ranch. How is he received by the first men he met?
0: He finds him to be very amicable and he is a quiet, shy boy at that point still. They ask him if he's looking for work and they have an opportunity for him there. So he starts out on the bottom rung of of a cattle ranch and he works his way up by merit, which is something that I truly cherish in life when something happens on merit. And uh, all of the good things in Clay come out in that sense of working with the ranch and and he learns how to be with other men who who can connect with him with strong bonds of friendship but it's his ethic that eventually impresses all it's an ethic of honor and directness and someone who can be depended on and trusted and he works his way up to be Afton's right hand man so he is the foreman And because the other men respect him so much, he is the excellent choice for this job because they will work for him.
2: It's at this point in the story where you mentioned the idea of redemption. Would you talk about redemption
0: as an overarching theme in this story? Well, uh, all of us have things in our past that haunt us and... Plates probably is the worst that could be, which is the the taking of the life of that young drummer boy. You know, I I've heard people say to me, when you get to be an old person, you don't want to regret the things that you've never done. And uh, I'm getting into that category, and I do not I do not have that regret at all. And I find that there's there's a greater regret, and that is a regret of things that I have done and wish that I hadn't. These are things that a person would never be proud to admit. But to me, that, that sense of living to be a better person in order to balance those scales, I feel like that's something that Clayton and I have in common. And what better way is there to redeem yourself than how you treat your fellow person and and also how you treat nature? Georgia
2: author Mark Warren. His new novel, Indigo Heaven, is a literary western. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you've just tuned in, I've been speaking with Georgia author Mark Warren. His new book, Indigo Heaven, is about an ex-Civil War soldier working as a cattle hand in the Wyoming Territory. Here, the author describes the owners
0: of the ranch, the Aftons. Well, Mr. Afton is from England. He comes from money, and obviously, because he's able to come to America and start a major cattle ranch, uh, which leads him to be the leading cattle owner in, in uh, the territory. And there's a little bit of similarity here to the Billy the Kid story, where Billy is offered a job by an English cattleman, too, whose name is Tunstall. And he plays a major part in that, that whole story. And there's a similarity here with Clayton and Afton, because when Afton takes him over as his foreman, this really is the the true beginning of Clayton's chance to make something of himself. And he's one of those rare men uh, of any time, even including our time, who recognizes his happiest place in life. Clayton has no aspirations to go any higher or to do anything else. He recognizes that this is the time that I want to dominate my life right now. I believe that so many people get caught with that trap of climbing the ladder, especially in the workplace, and then one day look back and think, I was so happy when I was down there at that rung on the ladder. Why didn't I recognize that? And how does Mr. Afton regard Clayton Jane? With tremendous respect. Mr. Afton trusts Clayton to the extreme, and I think he finds him charming in a sense that Clayton is uneducated and Afton is very educated, but he has so much trust in Clayton's voice, he would... uh, He runs everything by Clayt before he makes a final decision on it because he knows that Clayt really is the voice of reason and also that ethic again. He probably admires that. Perhaps
2: the most endearing character is Chalky Sullins. What
0: is his relationship with Clayt? Chalky would be Clayt's mentor. Chalky is a black man. At the ranch, I would say... He holds the position of being the most knowledgeable cowhand and ranch staff member who knows how to get all things done. He's the ultimate resource. He's the ultimate reference book on how do we get this problem solved. Chalky has been around. He just He's a powerful presence in the book because his uh, his knowledge of just survival skills on a ranch surpass everyone else's. And so Chalky recognizes in Clay an exemplary young man and takes him under his wing and teaches him everything. They grow to be peers, and they're very much like brothers. That's interesting to hear you say they're like brothers,
2: because I thought of Chalky as a father
0: figure for Clay. He was that too. I had a very similar experience in my life that I didn't have a father-son relationship with my father. And my first time after leaving home was working for a man who taught me a great deal about a lot of different things at a summer camp where I worked year-round. And in the beginning, I thought of him as my father figure, too. I recognized that. But the more that we worked together, the more we became brothers. And I've experienced that on the other end too, as a camp director myself, uh, besides my adult classes that I lead, I I once led summer camps for quite a long time. And I've had many, many young people come through my school and my camp. And as they've grown older, they went from that same status of the uh, the son figure to the peer figure, becoming brothers with me. So I've got I've got very close friends now who were once children under my tutelage.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: One takeaway from indigo heaven is that you learn a lot about someone by the way they treat a horse. Would you talk about how Clay teaches the little boy, Tom, to get acquainted with a horse?
0: Well, I would say that the main teaching tool is empathy. Empathy. Clay teaches the boy that horses are individuals too and that they have reactions and feelings and you've got to approach a relationship with a horse that way. You've got to understand that the horse also has preferences and, and maybe in some cases demands about how things work. And what, what is the, is it a ritual or a way of engaging that you blow warm air? That's an old Indian practice. You know, the, the native people of the plains are perhaps the most famous of all American horsemen. And among those, if you wanted a single one tribe out, it, it might be the Comanche. They had a relationship with their horses that was extremely close. And it was commonly practiced among them to breathe into the horse's nostrils and to even sleep with the horses and and as you rubbed them down you spoke to them. It was just such a close grooming of two partners and that's what they were really partners rather than beast and master. Yeah that's definitely what we see in Clayt
2: with Skitter. There's a lot of excitement at the Afton Ranch about two visits. The first will be from Mr. Afton's sister and her family, and later, a trip planned to Wyoming by the president, Ulysses Grant. What does the family visit add
0: to the plot line? The visitors from England are Mr. Afton's sister and her husband which would be Afton's brother-in-law, and the son of that union. When they arrive, the woman turns out to be an impressive and very talented painter. And she's a painter who can paint the, uh, the photographic, but has chosen not to, and to use suggestion, what we might think of in the Impressionist period, and it's a very tantalizing skill that she has because it's almost like she can see things in the landscape that the average man can't see until it's pointed out to them. And there is a recognition in her and in Clayt that each to the other is someone who deserves some attention. She recognizes the value of Clayt's ethic and He recognizes her talent and her relationship with Len that runs through that talent and both admire the other. And it leads to what could be, easily could be a love affair, but it does not. They won't allow it to. But the bond between them is as strong as two people who are in love with one another. It turns out that she is the victim of abuse from her husband. And so that creates an inner turmoil within the Afton family. So now we have a triangle, even though it's not your typical triangle where a love has been declared, the triangle exists nevertheless. And the woman, the painter woman's husband, turns out to be an antagonist of Clay's. And I don't want to do any spoilers here, but, but it creates quite a problem for Clay
2: even before he has met her clayton is drawn to the paintings which hang in the afton's home those that were created by isabella and clayton's response to the paintings reveal his appreciation of the extreme dark and light in each composition It's a window for readers into Clayt's perception, and it provides readers some of your more lyrical writing as well. Would you read the bottom of page 91, the bottom paragraph, through the
0: top of page 92? The twilight coaxed from the prairie grass a faint blue. It was not something you could point your finger at, but a glow that seemed to leach into the night air, like the seepage of a subtle fluorescent gas. He had seen it many times, but now he wondered how an artist might capture that blue tinged air that hung over the land at early evening. Chalky called it God's last breath, blowing out the candle flame of the sky. Just as daybreak allowed Clay his rightful ownership of the coming day, This parting color was like an elegiac entry in a ledger that recorded what a man had accomplished on that given day. That was what mattered, Clayton knew. What you did and how you had done it. It was important because it was something larger than any one man. The thread of small deeds performed by each sorry damn cowboy stitched together to make the fabric of a working ranch. It was that fabric Clayton knew that defined who he was.
2: The dark side of this story in the later part of the book deals with Isabella's husband, whom you've already said is physically abusive. He's unscrupulous in business and very
0: pompous. What ensues from his actions? He has come to take over the ranch. No one in the story is aware of the fact that Afton himself has created a situation where his debts have become overpowering and his brother-in-law has bailed him out of this in England. And the results of that are that he is going to take over the ranch. And the conflict is, can these cowboys accept him as their leader, owner, employer, because they had a a true devotion to Mr. Afton. They understood his limitations and that he didn't understand their lives, but they did have a respect for him because he treated them well. But now with this new owner, that's a very different story because he doesn't know how to treat men. He's more inclined to be wrapped up in his own power and as you said, his pompous nature. The plot becomes suspenseful at this point,
2: and there are major developments that would spoil the excitement for future readers. But one beautiful aspect I think we can discuss is the grace we see from the Indians in this story. Would you elaborate?
0: Yeah, I have a tremendous interest in Native Americans and have studied their history of that time quite a bit. And so I wanted to be sure to introduce them as an example of humanity as they were. It's important because in that time, the Native Americans were really seen only as obstacles to manifest destiny. Manifest destiny, to my mind, is just one of the, the biggest examples of the human being rationalizing what he does. The great victim of all that were the people who had originally lived here, who had no sense of ownership about the land. So there are constantly conflicts that pop up between the white man and the red man uh, throughout the West in that time. And so that's included in this story. But then uh, Clayton, performs an act of charity with some starving Native Americans by allowing them to take a wounded cow to use as food. And none of his ranch hands understand what he's done. They almost feel betrayed by what he But it comes back to Clay in the way of a return favor. Clay finds himself in dire circumstances where he could literally die, but he's taken in by a tribe who are living in a remote area of the mountains. They're living as fugitives, really, because if they're found by the whites, they'll be exterminated because they're considered renegades. They're those who have not complied with reservation life. And it's a beautiful part of the book, in my opinion, this communication going on between people who do not speak the same language, but they know of Clate. And here's where that orange blanket comes in. They know of his past deeds with the Native people because he carries his odd-colored blanket, and he has no idea about all this. He's at their mercy. He's helpless because of the physical situation that he's in. Again, I don't want to give all that away, but the conversations that go on between the two, as they each speak their own language, and one does not understand the other, Clay does eventually understand that they are helping him, and he he learns why later.
2: In the end, has Clayton Jane found redemption?
0: I think that anyone who reads the book would immediately say yes. If you ask Clayton if he had, I don't think so. I, I think that he probably had done everything that was possible in his lifespan to, to find that redemption. But probably Clayton would say something like, I'm still working on that. Georgia author Mark Warren.
2: His new novel is Indigo Heaven. Warren will be at Eagle Eye Bookshop for his book launch party tomorrow from 2 to 3 p.m. And you can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Up next, we'll talk with the star and the director of Julia Scotti. Funny that way. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright, says Thank you for listening. Beginning in the 1980s, comedian Julia Scotti performed as Rick Scotty and appeared on bills with the likes of Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock. Now, the trans comedian has returned to the stage as an older woman in comedy. Susan Sandler's new film Julia Scotti Funny That Way tracks the comedian's true tender and very funny comeback story. Julia Scotti and Susan Sandler are with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights.
3: Thank you, Lois. Lovely to be here. Great to be here,
1: Lois. Thank you for having us.
2: This film was shot over a period of five years with the goal of telling Julia's life story. Susan, why did you think that Julia's story was worthy of that commitment?
3: Well, the journey of an indie doc is passion. You know, there's not a commissioned piece. This is not a production company standing around waiting for the film to be delivered. This was me by myself meeting Julia and feeling absolutely compelled to tell her story. And the compulsion was I was fascinated by her uh, as a performer, as an individual, as someone who had a very important story to tell. And the commitment on her end, which I'm so grateful for, was that access. Um, We didn't know what the journey was going to be, of course, because that's what documentary storytelling is. It's a, a wonderful attraction to a subject that is absolutely compelling, but without a story map. The story map is what life gives us, which unfolds with great surprises as Julia gave us. So the the journey was not meant to be five years. It's just what it happened to be as the storytelling unfolded. And I'm very, very grateful that Julia went on the ride with me.
2: Hmm. Funny that way is a roller coaster. It's hilarious. And there are also moments that are very painful, very raw, especially those that explain Julia's previous distance with her children. Julia, was it difficult for you to be that vulnerable on camera? Uh,
1: Yes and no. I mean, it was such a joyous part of my life having them come back into my life that I was I was grateful in a way to have it on record, you know, to be able to watch it and see it and share it with people, too, whose stories may be similar to mine, who have lost somebody that they love in their life or more than somebody, and and then to have them come back. So I wanted people to, to share the joy of having them come back, you know. And, and on the other hand, it was a private moment, too. But uh, I think the lesson taken from it was more important that there is hope.
2: Oh, yeah. In fact, one of the comments you made in the film that really pulled me over was self loathing murderer of my former self. That just landed like a gut punch. Was it a shrink who said that to you?
1: Uh, No. (laughs) It was, uh, it came from, it was in my journal. I, I kept, Pretty meticulous journals uh, from about 1975, I guess, on. And uh, I guess, Susan, she combed through them page by page, right, Susan, wasn't that?
3: Oh, yeah. Julia Julia gave me boxes and boxes of every piece of writing and photographs and videos and so generously just opened it all up for me. And out of that, I, I pulled pieces that I thought would be valuable to the
2: storytelling. I love the use of animation throughout the film. Susan, would you talk about why you chose to include those segments?
3: Thank you. Um, First, I want to give a shout out to our animator, uh, the very gifted Sam Roth. And the process of working on the animation was to understand, you know, Julia's world is the world of comedy, um, the tone of the film, um, the storytelling, lifting it into that space as, with as many occasions as possible. First, we created, uh, working with Sam, we created the essence of Julia as the cartoon figure that we meet at the top of the film and the prologue. And then looked for, I looked for sections of the storytelling that felt that they could be illuminated through animation in a way that would be both entertaining and tonally connected to the storytelling of the film. So it, it was a, a really exciting process to figure out which sections wanted to be animated and then to work with a very gifted animator, Sam Roth, to realize that and then to show it to Julia, to let her meet her animated self. So all of the, all those pieces.
2: Julia, what were your reactions when you saw those animated figures?
1: Um, <laughs> it was a surprise. I knew, I had known that, that Susan had, had gotten Sam to work on them, but to see, well, what are they going to do with the way I look? And it was a pretty accurate uh,
2: representation, I thought. It was wonderful, and it was it was tender, I thought. It wasn't caricature-like in a negative way. It, no, no, not at all. Not at all. And when you put them in, Susan, it, it just felt so organic.
3: Yeah, it's, you know, the the goal um, in, in all of the pieces of the storytelling, you know, I spent the five years of working on this film, both combing through all of the archival material, which Julia shared with me, and much of which I had restored, because, you know, a lot of VHS tapes don't store well, and the material becomes disintegrated, so a lot of capturing of that material and converting it and then combing through it to find where the jewels were that we were going to use and then figuring out of course the story structure and that's the whole you know journey in the storytelling piece the writing of a documentary life is you know life is life and and we're telling the truth but you know people's lives are are complex and Julia is a complex character with a fascinating life so figuring out what the spine of the story is, and then, you know, which paintbrush to pick up at what point in the storytelling, um, an archival image or uh, interview images, or in this case, figuring out where the animation would illuminate part of the story. So, you know, that, that process, uh, and of course, animation, the animation that Sam did is not something that happens overnight. Each of those sequences um, took a long time. They're all hand-drawn, so it's, it was really exciting to figure that, those pieces out and then to work collaboratively with him on that. And I'm, I'm very glad that you feel that it, it blends seamlessly. That's the goal.
2: Absolutely. Julia, it was beautiful to witness your reconnection with your kids and delightful to find out that both your kids are comedy fans. Your son, Dan, is even a comedy writer and has done some stand-up himself. How did it make you feel to discover that your kids had this love of comedy despite the years you were distanced from them?
1: I was more surprised by my daughter's interest in it than my son. My son was always a ham, and I kind of, when I found out that he was doing it, I was like, yeah, no big surprise there. <laughs> just a, you know, he's just a... a, a loves comedy and he, you know, he's loved it since he was a little one. But my daughter, I, she always struck me as being serious, you know, and, and uh, with all the, you know, I, I completely lost touch with them all those years. So I had no idea that she was this, she had this growing interest. So it was for her a surprise for my son. No, not at all.
2: The fact that you were married a few times is essential to your story. And in hindsight, you say that you think most people should wait till they are older to get married. Why is that true?
1: I do think people should be sure about my marriage. It's, you know, it's not like the 1800s where we live to be 30 and then die. You, know, you can get married at you know, 20 and then be the widow by 30. You know? So you know, you're going to be with somebody 40, 50, 60 years. You better be damn sure that you're, you, know, you like this person. Especially, you know, for me and for a lot of trans people, multiple marriages are pretty common. You know, that we're all trying to find that normal in our lives. And so what's more normal than a white picket fence and, uh, and you know, 2.3 kids? I just think uh, I have my own personal feelings about marriage in general. But, yeah, I think you should wait.
2: Kate is particularly important to your story. Would you talk a little bit about her?
1: Kate is the most remarkable human being I've ever known in my life. She's the love of my life. I still love her and uh, probably will to the day I die. She also is the person who selflessly and lovingly helped me discover that I was trans when I didn't know what the issue was.
2: And she was your wife.
1: We're married, yes. But um, we the marriage was um, annulled. So yeah, I call it my, I was married two and a half times. <laughs> <laughs> she's my half time.
2: There is a very rough moment in the film when Julia's watching one of her decades-old performances and appalled to realize that she's done a bit that made fun of trans people. Susan, why did you want to include that in the documentary?
3: There was an opportunity to comb through the archival material and let Julia see what we found. It was an archival dig. And I knew that that was going to be revelatory and dramatic and a kind of important marker. Um, it was very interesting that that opportunity was um, in sync with Dan's visit so that Julia was, was able to discover that material with him and talk about it with him. Um, and I think that marker is very significant in terms of the then and now of her story.
2: Hmm. Julia, in your time off from comedy, you became a teacher. What attracted you to teaching?
1: Um, I, well, first of all, I love I love kids. So, and, and uh, teaching and comedy are very similar. How well, so? Well, you have a you have a captive audience, you know, in the, the kids, and you have a captive audience in in a nightclub. The only difference is, hopefully, that the kids aren't drunk and the audience is.
3: <laughs> you know,
1: uh, but they um, it was a natural for, you know for me because. Teaching answers a lot of my needs, and because and, I get bored on a job really easy, but the kids will keep you. No two days are the same in a the classroom. Uh, there's always some, you know, multiple crises crises to deal with, and uh, you know I get to use all of my creative juices. That keeps them flowing too. So uh, it was a natural progression, and a lot of comedians I know either came from teaching uh into comedy or went from when they left comedy went into teaching so really yeah 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 yeah. we make great teachers comedians
2: well when you went back to teaching what age group were
1: your students sixth grade teacher yeah
2: and do any of those students keep in touch they or do. watch your
1: comedy yeah i have uh, i have a couple of them that, I, that that stay in touch with me I, Uh, A few of them have come to the shows. And I, of course, I didn't recognize them because they're all grown up now. And and it makes me cry because I'm so old. But uh, it makes me laugh, you know, to see how wonderfully they they, turned out.
2: Let's talk about your time on America's Got Talent. Julia, what was it like for you to perform to an audience of that size and scale?
1: Um, I had really thought this through before I actually walked out on the stage and I and I had, I had worked theaters before where there were several thousand people, so I, I was used to that. It didn't bother me. Uh, it was a little different having the four judges in front of me. That was kind of intimidating. But my plan was to just look beyond them and not really pay attention to whether they were laughing or not, although Peripherally, I could see Simon out of the corner of my eye. And when he did laugh, I went, OK, I got this.
2: <laughs> Talk about a testament. Oh, yeah, huh? Well,
1: you don't think about the 13 million other people that are watching at home because it's not a, it's irrelevant. They don't exist. You know, when you're on when you're in that moment.
2: True. On the other hand, you have someone. In the moment, who could be rather intimidating, to put it mildly?
1: Yeah, yeah. But I knew that Howie, you know, I knew that I, I had enough confidence in my ability as a comic to know that how Howie would get what I was doing. And I knew that it, uh, uh, if if nobody else on that panel liked me, Howie would, you know, jump to my defense, which he did. But Simon, uh, when I saw him laugh, I, you could see it was genuine. You know, I just put my uh, foot to the gas and just didn't look back because I knew it was a, it was a done deal. It was going to be, it was going to be okay.
2: Julia's health becomes an issue toward the end of the time filming. And there's a hospital room recovery scene in the film. Yeah. Talk about not funny and vulnerability. Susan, would you tell us what, determined your choice to include that part of Julia's story?
3: Well, first, you know, it's it was so incredibly courageous of Julia to allow the camera into her life at that moment, and I'm very grateful for that. And I think what we see in the arc of the storytelling is someone with... Julia was, I think, two weeks away at that point from taping a Showtime comedy special. This was, you know, the timing on that event was unbelievably shocking for her. And what we see in in her story and in her life and in her example is extraordinary resilience. And that's, that's why that sequence is important. And that's why the movement of the story around her recovery and the choices that she's making to live such a healthy life. And this is a person, this is a woman with, great strength and great will and um, a bionic determination, right? So, you know, she she keeps on keeping on and keeps us very connected to
2: what matters in life. Of course, you mine your life-threatening illness for comedy material, Julia, when you talk about your quadruple bypass and say, your arteries were clogged with pastry and cheeseburgers.
3: <laughs> yes, <laughs> that would have been a
2: great animation, Susan. You could have had a wonderful little cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> Truly an event. I'm so glad you've recovered. Your health has recovered. And now that you are
1: well again, Julia, what's next? Wow. Uh, well, I'm working now on... on- uh, putting together material for a new album that I'm recording November the sixth of this year. If all goes well, uh, so there's that. I wrote a play. Yep. Yeah, yeah a beautiful play. play. Uh huh. We're hoping to get that uh, maybe produced. Wow, will you act in it? No, 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 no. I uh, No, I'm too. Cl- I'm too close to it first of all, and uh, I'm too old for it, <laughs> for the parts anyway.
2: Do you have anyone in mind who? You'd love to see perform you? Uh,
1: the characters actually not me. Oh. They're, they're based on people I know. They're composite characters, so.
2: Oh, now you do have me intrigued. I thought it was exquisite when you said, if it's your truth, it's gonna be hard to talk about. Julia Scotti, thank you for talking about your truth. So beautifully and so hilariously.
1: I live by the words of Charlie Chaplin, who said, to truly laugh, you must be able to take your pain and play with it. And That's what I've tried to do.
2: Comedian Julia Scotti and filmmaker Susan Sandler. Sandler's new documentary, Julia Scotti, Funny That Way?, is streaming on iTunes, Amazon Prime, Google Play, DirecTV and more. You can learn more about the film on our website wabe.org/citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an Encore broadcast tonight at 9. Monday at 11 a.m., I'll talk with pianist Laura Downs, the host of NPR Music's Amplify with Laura Downs. Her new album, New Day Begun, features music by 15 black composers spanning more than a century. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drones. Summer Evans is our producer. And our engineer is Shelley Kennedy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org citylights. Wishing you a safe and good weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.